Well, the book of Ezekiel. We are, we are going tonight where quite literally angels fear to tread. And the, the text even that we'll look at tonight will give us a revelation of that. But in the book of Ezekiel, the main, the main theme is the glory of God. It's really not a lot different from the book of Hebrews from a thematic point of view, but it's revealed to us in a very, very different way. It's revealed to us in a number of different contexts. And, and you know, when we think of, of our world, there, there are a number of kind of crazy things in our world today. There are a number of things that, that amaze us. And, and, you know, I remember when I was a, a bit younger speaking with my grandmother and just reflecting with her about what it was like to have been born shortly after the turn of the century in the early 1900s and all that she saw. She grew up on a farm in Montana and, I mean, it was nothing but, but horses when she grew up. And then, then comes the car and before you know it, we're moving, you know, as the Industrial Revolution is speeding ahead and, and all of a sudden we're, you know, building rockets to go to the moon and and telephones which never existed, and now telephones which you can hold in your hand and carry around with you. And so, you know, just so many amazing things. And in addition to that, so many glorious advances. Consider where we are medically. Isn't it amazing to know what's going on? I mean, I just marvel at what went on with Averill's surgery, right? You know, they've, well, we won't go into the details because they are a little gnarly at some points, but um, it's just amazing, Amazing to consider Dave and all of these, you know, um, just really, and I think the glory of God is revealed in all of those. Well, we're going to see more wild and crazy and more amazing and glorious facts as we go through the book of Ezekiel, much like our, our recent world history. So in our text today, I've, I've titled our message with that thought in mind, The Glorious Humility. The glorious humility. Now, because cover, we're covering large sections of text during this, we normally won't read the whole book. So I'm counting on you to be doing your homework. Because if not, you might feel a little bit lost. We will talk about most of it, and some nights we will read it all, but some not. Therefore, it's essential that you all keep your reading up to speed. Now, Ezekiel is synchronous with the prophets Daniel and Jeremiah. They all were writing and ministering at the same time. Jeremiah, of course, remained in Jerusalem. And Daniel was also taken captivity to Babylon. The whole aspect of exile, we remember that the tribes had split after Solomon and the ten northern tribes split off from the two southern tribes, from Judah and Benjamin. The ten northern tribes, if we go and we look through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, they're the ones that have the continuous wicked kings. They, they began bad with uh, the, the setup of, of idol worship because the, the king did not want to lose them back to the south, to Jerusalem, to the center of cultic worship and corporate worship. So he built the golden calves in the northern area. They continued to go downhill and, uh, and, and follow Jeroboam, and it, they were the ones who were first taken into captivity in 721 B.C. by the Assyrians, who came in and basically moved them all out and took them 
into Assyria. But the south also followed closely thereafter. Although they should have learned from watching the northern tribes, they did not. There were three captivities in the south. The the dates and timing are important because we're going to see a lot of dates through our text. The first captivity in the south was in 605 B.C. 605. The second captivity was in 598 B.C. And the final captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came and he sacked Jerusalem was in 586 B.C. So... Through that period of 19 years, there were three captivities. In the first captivity of 605 B.C., that's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his friends were all taken off by Nebuchadnezzar. Basically, he came in and he cherry-picked all of the, the royal families and all of those who were the most elite in Jerusalem, figuring if he pulled out the brain trust, then he would take out the rebellion out of the land. Well, he didn't understand the Jewish people very well, and it didn't go so great. He also took with him King Jehoiakim at that time. That was Josiah's son. We remember good King Josiah and the reforms which he attempted to institute. Well, after he died, Jehoahaz took the throne, and the king of Egypt did not care for him at all, so he went and captured good portions of Jerusalem, took Jehoahaz there, and put Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, as the king. But he was not a good son. He did not follow in his father's father's stead, started paying tribute to uh, other kings to help out, and so he was taken captive. The second captivity in 598 is when Ezekiel was taken captive. Didn't go good pulling out all of the brain people, so Nebuchadnezzar goes back and he takes out again a significant portion of the elite people, of which Ezekiel was one and his family, and he took 10,000 with him. If you can imagine, we've talked about the distance. There's almost 600 miles around the Fertile Crescent to get to Babylon from Israel because you can't go across the Great Desert. So if you can imagine 10,000 people walking for that 600-mile trip, that's what this looked like. He took them south of Babylon. He allowed them to have land and to farm and to have a relatively good life. He, um, he put them in a place where they effectively were, they had some prosperity and they had some freedom. Now, some of their freedom was the fact that if you try and escape, you've got a basically desert all around you and you're going to die in the desert. So it was freedom, but not so much. You know, it was a little bit of a prison that didn't need a fence. But he did give them land, and as we'll see, they had water to farm, which of course was vital. Well, um, because of their affluence and because they were still in a relatively nice area, you know, or or decent surroundings and provisions, they said, well, the Lord's taken care of us. So surely he's going to return us back to the land soon. So they really weren't too worried about their circumstances. They figured it'll be a few years, but no big deal. Meanwhile, Jeremiah is writing, you're going to be in captivity 70 years, so make homes, marry, plant, yield and become part of the culture well they're not buying that and we'll see that there's a continual thread of their not accepting god's judgment as we move along the war that was going on in the meantime between the babylonians and assyrians through this captivity was huge the assyrians effectively you can think of nineveh 
We all know the story of Jonah. Nineveh, the Ninevites were the most wicked of people. They invented crucifixion, and, and it was even perhaps more sickening than it was with the Romans, although the Romans did perfect it. They, just, they were a horrid bunch. And they had gone in and they had sacked Babylon and they'd taken this huge statue, Marduk, and they'd hauled it off to Assyria. And they basically were kind of making fun of their god and their statue. Well, as it turned out, they made fun of a lot of gods and one of them that they made fun of was Hezekiah's god. And he slayed 185,000 of the Assyrian army in one night, as we know, recorded three times in Scripture. So that just destroyed the Assyrian army. Well, Babylon was quick to come in, wipe out Nineveh, and they rose to power. So that's kind of what's going on behind the scenes of all of this. Just from a structural point of view, so you've got an idea about where we're going, the outline of Ezekiel is fairly simple. It's a lot like Isaiah. It falls into two clean halves. Um, the first, not halves necessarily, but two clean sections. The first section is from chapter 1 to 32, and it basically deals with condemnation and retribution. It's kind of the gnarly part of the book, if we were to use that phrase. I guess we can use, can I use that phrase? Good. Um, the second half of the book is from chapter 33 to 48, and it deals with consolation and restoration. So 1 to 32, condemnation and retribution. 33 to 48, consolation and restoration. So let's look into our first section of Isaiah and launch in full speed here. Look at verse 1 with me. I'm going to read the first three verses. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. This is our introduction. It's wonderful to see the chronology of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is very specific in the way he comes forward from a time frame point of view. It's not quite like Exodus and Numbers where there's almost a continual point by point change, but at critical points in the book, he'll give us a time frame. So we want to note these and kind of recognize what's going on chronologically because it becomes very important as we approach that transition in chapter 33. The time frame that, uh, you know, and, and i got to say, I love the, the, all the chronology here. I don't know, as an engineer, maybe this is why it's one of my favorite Old Testament books. Because it just, uh, it's a lot for you to dig your teeth into. Well, the two chronological references that at the beginning, the first one, the 30 years, is the age of Ezekiel. That's going to become really important as we get to verse 3. He's 30 years old at this point. The second chronological reference, yeah, whatever, the chronological reference, sometimes you just can't get those words out. The, <laughs> the chronological reference, the second one there, relates to the reign of King Jehoiachin and his exile. You remember I said King Jehoiakim 
went into exile the first time in 605 B.C. with Daniel. Jehoiachin was taken exile with Daniel in the second exile in 598. So now if we take five years and add that to 598, keep in mind B.C., so we're actually subtracting, that puts us in 593 B.C., this is one of the most specific chronological records, and we have that proved biblically and extra-biblically, gives us one of the closest recordings of time in all of the Old Testament. So very, very specific. The River Kibar was, it was really a huge irrigation canal. Now around here, where we have so much water, and there's five amazing rivers that pour into Mobile Bay, y'all don't understand canals so much. You know, because they're just, it doesn't seem like you need to worry about where the water's going because it's everywhere, as we saw this afternoon. But in California, that's a whole nother ballgame. So and so also, very much like California, the, the geology very similar to Death Valley, where Babylon is, they built this huge canal to carry water to develop farming lands. So that's why this becomes such a critical component, is it allowed the Israelites to, to farm the land. The canal ran southeast off of the Euphrates River, which we know goes all the way back to Genesis. We're not saying absolutely that it's the same river that's in the garden that surrounded it, but it is very interesting that the name is the same, and a lot of scholars believe that it likely had some connectivity to the garden. And uh, it was a very important for that. And notice that he is among the exiles in verse 1. Okay, he is not out by himself. He is not some uh, high and, and lofty guy who doesn't associate with the people. He is with the people. It's a very important point. He says that he saw the heavens opening. That's a, that's a pretty unique phrase in Scripture. We see it in four other locations and all of them in the New Testament. Whenever there's an Old Testament phrase that's used only in the New Testament, we want to pay attention to it. We see the heavens opening first and most prominently at the baptism of the Lord. As, as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened. Remember, and John the Baptist and the Lord are looking into the heavens, so the sky is literally rent apart. The literal Greek word there, it means it's ripped open. So they are looking through the sky into the heavens, looking into the third heaven, I believe. So that's the first place we see it used. The second time we see it used is at Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. And in verse, I believe it is 32, where, or 52, where he is about to be stoned and he looks up and the heavens are opened and he sees Jesus standing and waiting for him. The, the third time that we see it is in Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 where he is waiting for Cornelius the centurion to send his people, and he gets the vision of the food coming down. And the Lord tells him that all food is clean, so also are the Gentiles clean and able to come. That's the third. And the fourth is in the book of Revelation, twice in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 19. So a really prominent element here. This is, this is There are several vision instances that happened, particularly in the prophetic text, but this is very unique in what he saw. And what did he see? He saw visions of God. What is the subject of all that we're going to look into? That's it. It's the vision of God. 
verse 3 says he received a word of the Lord. This is the confirmation that God was speaking directly to him. You'll remember that this was the 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 mile marker this was the the watershed mark for the prophet did he speak from the lord the lord has spoken to me and i'm telling you remember micaiah who was speaking to uh, one of the kings of israel and uh, would often confuse him by not using that term the interesting thing is that these prophets they mark this is what really marks the intertestamental period When we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the distinction is that the Lord stopped speaking. There was no longer any communication from the Lord to his prophets. So here we find we're moving towards that conclusion, but this is a time where the Lord is doing much speaking. The the other thing I want us to see here is that Ezekiel is a priest. Not a prophet, He is a priest. He is 30 years old, and he has been ripped out of Jerusalem five years ago at 25 years of age. At 30 years old, the priest is inaugurated and put into service in the temple. Imagine being of the priestly line. Imagine Understanding that all of the national worship was focused on the priest who would go in and who would offer sacrifices and who would offer prayers and who would take the sin offering for the nation and sprinkle it upon the horns of the altar. And now all of a sudden you're ripped out of that and you're thrown into this desert country with these people. This will explain so much in the next couple weeks about what we see about Ezekiel. He is turned into a prophet. He is given the office of prophet. The Lord speaks with him. But it tells us, and we get a little inclination at the end of verse 3 as to how difficult this really was. And the hand of the Lord was upon me. When that phrase is used in the scripture, it usually is the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. This had a massive impact upon him. And we're going to see there is no prophet in all of the scripture that had a job to do like Ezekiel and was given the constraints and confines of how to do that job. Well, that's just the beginning and the introduction of this. Let's go to our first point in verse 4, which I've called the initiated glory. The initiated glory. Initiated means it is the beginning of the glory revealed. And it also is an indication of creation. It is the glory that which was created. Look at verse 4 with me. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. A great cloud with fire flaming forth continually. And a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal. In the midst of the fire. This is the introduction of all that we're going to see. This is the precursor. The storm is coming and God is spoken about as coming in a storm. Well, we certainly saw a little of that today. I don't know where you were, but I've got to tell you. The seventh floor of Mont Lamar today, it was lighting up. I, I, I love lightning and I, I've always enjoyed watching it. 
I was ready to go hunker down back in the inner office a little later because I'll tell you, it was just a little too exciting. And that was nothing compared to this. This element of brightness and glowing, we're going to see many components of that that are repeated in all of the divine revelations. The, the, the technology of the time, it was like glowing metal. Something like glowing metal. That means they knew what glowing metal looked like. Metallurgy had gotten to the point where they understood that. I've not been into a steel mill, but I've seen pictures of that red hot molten metal just glowing. Well, they had that kind of technology in Ezekiel's time back in 593 B.C. Incredible to understand some of those components that we see in the text. Look at uh, the rest of the initiated glory here as I read through the next verses, beginning in verse 5. With it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. And here we start to go, okay, what's that look like? Verse 7. Their legs were straight. Okay, we can understand that. We have those. And their feet were like calves' hoof. And they gleaned like burnished bronze. Okay, under their wings, on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above and each had two touching another, being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward, wherever the Spirit was about to go. They would go, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and the lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. And you just go, whoa, what is all of that about? What is, what is being spoken of here? I mean, this is a pretty amazing picture. This is a, a pretty kind of wild and crazy illustration as we try and paint it in our minds. Now, what we're seeing here is that, that there is a, a presentation of these animals that are the initiated glory, these beings rather, as opposed to animals, these beings which we would normally call either cherubim or seraphim. Uh, Whenever you hear a a Hebrew word and it has im at the end, it just means plural. Okay, so a cherub is singular, a cherubim is plural. So you've got a basolo or you've got basolos. Same kind of thing in Hebrew, just the I am ending. So we're familiar with cherub. We often think of them as angelic beings, and so we should. That's exactly what they are. Now I want to take you to uh, another similar description, which we're very familiar with, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6 and verse 2. In Isaiah 6 and verse 2, it says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, 
With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So do we have cherubim or seraphim? At this point, we can't specifically say, but notice there is a distinction. There, these creatures are mentioned as having four wings versus those in Isaiah have six. I do believe that there is a distinction between those. I want to take you to another text and read to you a little bit more about these cherubim from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6. Revelation 4, 6 at the second half of the verse says, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. A unique component, that aspect of full of eyes, different than we're going to see, yet there is a similarity to it. Looking on in Revelation at verse 7, we see the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. We see the same explanation and existence of these living creatures going on at almost every appearance of the Lord in the book of Revelation. At five different times that occurs at chapter 5 and 7, at chapter 14 and 15, and in chapter 19. In, in, in Revelation 5, we see that they not only are there, but they are speaking. Revelation 5 and verse 14 shows the the speaking of these creatures where it says in in revelation 5 14 and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down in worship usually when the elders and the living creatures are falling down it's not clear whether the elders are speaking or the angels here or the seraphim here it clearly is the creatures so also we have the same thing in Revelation 6.1. Then I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come! So these are, these are speaking. Now there's some distinction that's gone on in these texts. And I want to uh, read one other text for you in Ezekiel. You can turn ahead with me if you would to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 where Ezekiel speaks again about these creatures. In Ezekiel 10, and verses 1 and 2. In Ezekiel 10, 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance, resembling a throne, appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Jump down to verse 8. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings, something similar that we saw in Ezekiel 1. Then I looked and behold four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub. 
and the appearance of the wheels was like a gleam of a Tarshish stone. As for the appearance of all four of them, they had the same likeness as if one wheel were within another wheel. When they moved, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. The whole body, their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels belonging to all four of them. The wheels were called in my hearing the whirling wheels, and each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second face was the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Kibar. Now when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise with them. For the spirit of the living beings was in them. Now this kind of becomes sort of a, a crossover here between the two. But there's some slight distinctions in the description of the faces. Ezekiel tells us that they had the face of a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle. Revelation 4 almost paralleled that where it said they have the face of the lion and a calf instead of a bull, a man and an eagle in order. Ezekiel 10 has a slight distinction. Instead of having a bull, it says they have the face of a cherub, a man, a lion, and an eagle. Only if we read very carefully there in chapter 10 and you can go back and look at it, he's actually describing the wheels as having the faces so it just adds to the complexity well what is all of this this is obviously the visage of the cherubim so he's delineating these as the cherubim as to whether there is a distinction between the four-winged cherubim and the six-winged seraphim we aren't really told but there are a tremendous amount of parallels which is interesting so this is the initiated glory. Let's look at our second point, the energized glory in verses 15 to 21. The energized glory. And it's energized because now we get the focus of the power behind the vision of God. Look at these beginning in verse 15 with me. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels also rose. When, wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close behind them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels." Whenever those went, these went. 
And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close behind them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. This is the energized glory because here is the power force. Here is the spirit that is moving within them. I think this has to be the Spirit of God, but we find nowhere else to make that direct connectivity. So the reason I express that is because what is being painted here? This is a picture of the vision of God. Would we expect it to be anything other than the Spirit of God that is energizing and showing us this vision? There's, there's some reference to the, the eyes that are round about in the creatures in Revelation, which we read. And the parallel passages of Revelation gave us some of this detail. So the question naturally asked is, what is this? What are we seeing? What, what are these wheels, wheels within me, wheels, moving but not turning, rising up? I don't know. I don't know. All I can tell you is what we learned in verse 1. This is the vision of God. It is the vision of God. And the living creatures are part of the vision of God. The wheels are part of the vision of God. We're going to discuss why they might not be in all the visions of God in a moment, but they clearly are repeatedly represented in various texts in Scripture. Some have said this is a picture of the throne chariot for God. I think there's some validity to that. I think that's a good assessment. As if we think of the chariot of Solomon and how he would be carried along by all of these slaves. This is the chariot of God, if you will. A beautiful picture, stunning to behold. Well, the wheels are part of this, but let's move on and see the climax of our vision and the glory revealed in our third point, the affected glory in verse 22. The affected glory in verses 22 to 28. This is, this is the pinnacle of vision. Is This is the divine component. Now let's look at this beginning in verse 22. Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse. Like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one towards the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the other side and the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went. Like the voice of the Almighty. A sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Wherever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazzi in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance. What, 
What an amazing picture this is. Once again, we want to consider these divine vision components and contrast them with some of the other aspects of Scripture. Let me read a few of the other visions of God, keeping in mind that which we just read. Listen to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19 is where the Lord first met with the entire nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19 and verse 16 we read, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. This is the first expressed vision of God as describing him directly. Of course, we understand and have discussed even this past weekend the response of the children of Israel who said, no, we don't want to speak with him anymore. That was a little too much. Turn with me, well, I, I, let me just read for you because of time, Exodus 24, the next vision of God in Exodus 24 and verse 9. In that, uh, in that text in Exodus 24, 9, we see, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. He did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain. But the elders, he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let them approach them. And then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. On the mountaintop. So there's the first visions of God. Isaiah chapter 6, which we read a little bit of, and let me share just the next few verses that continue to bring forward for you the next and probably most prominent vision that people are aware of. In Isaiah 6 1, and we saw the seraphim described and what they do. And it, it talks about the Lord sitting on the throne lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. He goes on in verse 6 and talks about the seraphim who flew to him with burning coals in their hands, taken from the altar of God. So we see this, the Lord with this huge temp, this huge train that is filling the temple. Two other references I want to give to you tonight are from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 is the first one that I want to read for you. And in Daniel 7, 9, we see 
a, a reflection of Daniel's vision of God. And it says, I kept looking until the thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like wool. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. In the wheels were a burning fire. That's a very interesting portion of that verse. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And of course, the vision goes on and talks about the Son of Man coming and God's provision for him. Turning ahead to Daniel chapter 10, there's two verses there that are very instructive for us. Daniel 10 and verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. In Revelation, we have a couple more that add to our view of the visage of God. In verse 12 of Revelation 1. Revelation 1.12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his his face was like the sun shining in its strength. We could go on and look at Revelation 4 and 15. But what we see is that there are parallels in every one of those passages, and yet they're not the same. Why are they not the same? Critics are all over the fact, well, this one sees this, this one sees something different. There are parallel components of eyes, but these are not the same. They they couldn't have truly seen God. Let me ask you, if we were to see God and ask to write it down, do you think that you might have a little difficulty recording what you saw? Seeing the almighty God who is matchless in his infinity? If we were to just sit down and you were each to ask to write a 25-word description of me standing here, none of them would match. Why would we expect that a human's view and description of the God who is indescribable would match? And yet there are parallels in all of them. Parallels that are much too close to think that they came from sources that didn't actually see the same visage. It's absolutely clear that Ezekiel has revealed to us here in this first chapter the vision of God as best he could express it. Although the wheels appear only here, they don't actually just appear here for there's a hint of them in Daniel. So there are commonalities in all of them. And yet really it is 
the conclusion that becomes the most amazing point. These are stunning to consider. And we could ponder them forever and to consider that one day we will stand before this God, one day we will see this, one day we will know what this means, it blows me away. But there's something that's much more important. And it is, remember I mentioned that our text was titled The Glorious Humility? Well, it is the affected humility at the end of verse 28. Look at it with me. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Beloved, we've just seen the visage of God described for us. Are we ready to fall on our faces? Every time we come together corporately or individually and we open the precious word of the Lord, we are brought face to face with God. Are we prepared to fall down on our faces as we see it? Or do we read our Bibles because we're supposed to? Not stopping to recognize all that's there. This must be our heart attitude. We must have this kind of affected humility. Yes, when we read the description of God and we have to sit and just go, oh my gosh, how incredible is that? To consider those creatures and the faces and the wings and and the wheels and how they're moving and all of that and the the throne above and what does a lapis lazy sheet look like and whoa but every time we open god's word we are brought to the same conception the same face-to-face vivid visage of the almighty and holy god And do we respond with awe and wonder? Do we fall on our faces at the majesty that's been revealed and the glory that's been shown to us in the gospel? This is what's to be reflected in our lives. This is what's to set us on fire as we consider moving ahead and and the studies and the opportunities that we have corporately. God has so blessed us to give us this kind of a picture of himself. I pray that this picture will encourage your hearts and I pray that you'll consider more how whether you're looking at the the word by word, verb by verb, color by color picture of God or whether you're looking at the genealogy that is in Leviticus that you would stop and be amazed at what God has shown to us because we are so blessed in this gift, are we not?